Good morning, diners and drinkers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. We're drinking, we're drinking today. Yeah, we're drinking. Know, we're thinking about <laughs> drinking. If we're not drinking, we're actually thinking about it and planning for it. And that's a clue as to one of the tracks later in the program. Okay. But, but in the, but in the meantime, we were, we were hugely intrigued by the name of a company and, the, and their liquor called Rabbit Hole. Rabbit hole distiller. Peter just couldn't resist, and and Anne went along. So here's uh, Adam Edwards. Edwards of Rabbit Hole Distillery, Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, sir. We're talking to Adam Edwards uh, from Rabbit Hole Distillery, um, and and I just said Adam, and we have a son named Adam. Um, Adam Edwards just got back from paternity leave with their firstborn. Uh, and, and I said, do you know that Peter, my co-host and husband's nickname is Rabbit? And from there, we can jump to what absolutely gorgeous bottles this bourbon comes in. Absolutely, yeah. That's, it's why beautiful, right? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll get to this. But why don't we begin at the beginning? For our listeners around the world who, who drink scotch or they drink cognac or they drink some, some other device but not bourbon, what's the bourbon story? Go, 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 way, go way back to when bourbon started in these United States. Way back. And bring, and bring, way back, bring us, right? And bring us through to what caused rabbit hole to get involved and what rabbit hole means is different than other bourbons. Absolutely. You know, bourbon does have a, a really beautiful history, and it, it all kind of starts with people immigrating to the country and moving to the U.S., right, moving to America. And, and uh, you know, way back, you're looking at the, the, the late 16, you know, mid-16s, late 16th century, a lot of farmers from, um, you know, Britain, um, from Scotland, from Ireland were coming over and, Back then, when you were a farmer, you were also a distiller because that's a good way to store some of your Is that true? Jobs, right? Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that. Absolutely, because it's a great way that you know if you don't go through, you spend all this hard work, you know, cultivating this wheat or this rye or this barley, and you don't use it all. Well, you don't want to just throw it away. You want to make something out of it, and it's actually a good way to kind of store those nutrients. And then on top of that. Whiskey, you know, keeps you keeps you warm at night. So if you were a farmer, a lot of times you, you were a distiller. So when they moved to this country, um, you know, they started setting up these towns and, of course, starting starting the, the farmsteads. And they look around and they see, well, there's not a ton of barley here. And, you know, scotch is primarily malted barley, if not all malted barley, right? Um, and then, you know, they're looking around and they see corn. There's a lot of corn here, maybe some rye and some wheat, but corn is everywhere. So that really, you know, that kind of started it right there where, hey, we're going to, you know, start growing corn. We hold this leftover corn. Let's ferment it. Let's distill it out. And then you have corn whiskey. Um, you know, you fast forward, you know, a century and a half, you know, this corn whiskey, this primarily corn-based whiskey actually gets a definition. I believe it was 1964 that they actually really? legally defined. Yeah, it was actually mid-century. They legally defined bourbon. Um, and to be yeah. bourbon, 
it must be a product of the United States. Um, it must be at least 51% corn in what you call the mash bill, right? Um, and then it must be uh, aged, you know, in charred oak vessels. I always right. like to say that, by the way. The loss of vessels, <laughs> which I think is hilarious, because it's not like any of us out there are aging whiskey in, like, you know, oak trapezoids. Right? Everybody's using barrels because they're easier to move. Uh, but you can do whatever vessel you want as long as it's a, it's a brand-new virgin charred oak vessel. So now, that's where, you know, bourbon came from. Now, it's, in, it's interesting because the people who made scotch, who, many of whom were probably the people who started making bourbon in the United States, but their, their tradition was barley, and their tradition yes. was casks that had been used for something else. Yes, so, so absolutely. That, that's something, so that, that something else made its way into the liquor that they were producing. I, exactly. I, I, always, I, I always explain to people that the reason that the Scottish use, use barrels is because they're cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about right, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 about they, and, right. They, and they speak of Scotland in, in my country, which is England, as having short arms and long pockets. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not too different here. I mean, you know, it has to be oak, uh, you know, that regulation. Now, you can use any oak in the world to make okay, bourbon, all right. but pretty much everybody uses white American oak because sure. it's cheaper because it's easier to get here, right? It's very prevalent in the United States. So sort of the same thing, really, you know, whiskey was sort of this, this form of convention, right? It was something, a, a need of a necessity, but also it was kind of easy to do because you just let it ferment and then you boil it off, you collect the steam, and then you've got whiskey. It's a lot more complicated nowadays, especially in our distillery. But, I mean, essentially that's what you're doing. And so it was kind of low maintenance, <laughs> oh, yeah. and they would get something out of it. Yeah, they would get yeah, something out of it, and especially the aging part, right? You just sit there and wait. <laughs> no, no that, there was chalk. There was charcoal in the, in the mix somewhere in the mix with charcoal. Where did where did that come in? Is, is that the char from the barrels having its influence on the liquor? It, it is for the most part. So for bourbon, you know, another one of those sort of regulations of bourbon is that it can't you can't have any added flavorings um, or colors, right? Um, in fact, Scotch. There's actually you can use a very certain type of caramel coloring to color your scotch, it gives no flavor at all, but you can do that for scotch with regulations. With bourbon, you can't add anything that changes the color or changes the um, flavor, right, except for naturally, and that's what the barrel is doing. Now, okay. you probably have heard kind of charcoal filtering before. That's a yeah. little bit more along the lines of, like, Tennessee whiskey. They actually will filter their distillate. Before they even put it in the barrel, they actually filter that unaged spirit through charcoal, and it's usually maple wood um, that is, char is burnt out and charcoaled. They'll filter it through that. It kind of gives a, a very distinct flavor to Tennessee whiskey. Kentucky bourbon, on the back end, when you're dumping these barrels, a lot of that char on the inside kind of comes out, and it'll collect in the bins or the, the troughs that we're dumping this into for bottling. And so it'll kind of filter through that. It's not really taking much away, believe it or not, it's really adding more barrel flavor, that kind of beautiful sort of caramel and vanilla sugar 
sort of flavor that those new toasted oak barrels give, it actually adds a little bit more of that. So even the aging is adding that, but even the filtration through the dumping is doing that too. No, so who thought that we interviewed Rabbit, the character, the guy? The guy? Yeah, his wife was there at the bourbon tasting. I, I don't remember. <laughs> he, he's <laughs> long gone, I think. You're asking, and me, to remember, you're asking me to, to re- remember something at least a week away. <laughs> well, he was a character. I mean, he was really a character. I thought maybe you'd not remember him. There's one, there's one guy that I'm thinking of, but it, it, may, it may not be him, but his story is interesting, and that's Angel's Envy. And Mr. Oh, yeah. Mr. That one. Mr. Henderson. I think it was Henderson, wasn't it? Lincoln Henderson. Lincoln, Lincoln Henderson. Henderson. Yeah, he was incredible. Um, so, you know, his son, Wes, runs the distillery now along with Wes's son, they run, and they're so close. I'm actually sitting on top of our distillery. We have a a tasting room on top of the distillery that sort of overlooks Louisville, and from Rabbit Hole, I can see Angel's Envy from here. So that's how close we are in Louisville to each other. Um, Yeah, and Lincoln was amazing. I heard that Lincoln actually claims, and probably rightly so, the credit for creating Woodford Reserve, which (laughs) the first first time I went to... uh, Kentucky on on a business trip before before the business the next day we had we had dinner at Calumet Farms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just just around the just around the corner from all the distilling activity beautiful area and the, and the, the local people who were entertaining us swore that the best bourbon generally available was Woodford Reserve now that's because because Rabbit Hole hadn't come along yet. Absolutely. It was it was a bit ago, right? I mean, that's the great thing about our industry is that there is so such amazing bourbon out there. There's always something for somebody. Um and being Noah, bourbon Noah is who I'm thinking of, Rabbit. Okay, oh, love. There was there was there was, some, <laughs> there was there was somebody who for the first time uh, n- named a woman as the chief I don't know what the right yeah. is. Yeah, the master distiller. Um, I master believe that was Kathleen Key. Yeah, and uh, her name was Marianne. Marianne um, was Barnes then. It's Marianne Eves now. Uh, she's a great figure. She is kind of off on her own doing this incredible consulting business um, and tasting projects, which is incredible. But, yes, yeah, she was named as the first kind of modern female master distiller. But believe it or not, I mean, 120, 150 years ago, there were female master distillers in Kentucky. I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, Before Prohibition, there were around 2,000 distilleries in Kentucky. Today, today, as we stand today, there are only about 70. So that really shows you, yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of room to grow still, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that when you think of it in that terms – of it going from 2,000 distilleries, everybody making their own product, and it's vastly different, all living within that regulation of bourbon. And then you fast forward 100 years, and there's only, you know, 50, 60, 70 in Kentucky. There you see the pool has dramatically shrunk. And I think that's really where Rabbit Hole came from was our owner. He was was actually a scotch drinker, so – He's our he's our owner and founder. He was he was a big Scotch drinker. He was 
living in Chicago as a psychologist. And uh, he really? met a girl from Louisville that turned him into a bourbon drinker and then drastically overshot the mark. And uh, they moved down here to Louisville, and he really started discovering his love for bourbon. But coupled with that, he started getting really frustrated that there was kind of a lot of monotony in the industry. Now, if Kabe had been around 150 years ago, he probably wouldn't have been so frustrated because there were so many different types of bourbon out there in American whiskeys. But, you know, things kind of simplified a little bit after Prohibition. Now, we're seeing a huge sea change in the industry today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now there's it's a lot back to, exactly. yeah, lots of different things. Um, um, exactly. So if you're focusing mainly on the rabbit hole itself, I mean, what's mm-hmm. that backstory? I mean, when did it start? You told us now yeah. about the founder uh, and mm-hmm. the name. Tell us about the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. It's a really, it's a really neat little story. Um, so after Kave and Heather moved to Louisville, I mean, Heather's from Louisville, like I am, so she already kind of knew about bourbon. And they moved here, and he just started really discovering how much he loved bourbon. He still loves scotch. He still loves scotch to this day. But bourbon really became an obsession for him. And so after a while, it switched from being a consumer to being like, you know, I think let's take a run at it, right? So oh, wow. he asked Heather, he said, "Hun, let's sell the practice. They're both practicing down here. Let's mortgage the house. Let's open a bourbon distillery. Oh, and nice. she told Kave, you know, this obsession of yours is going to lead the family down the rabbit hole, and then there's no going <laughs> oh, back. Oh, oh, and he oh. loved that name. Yeah. He said, oh, that's a great name for a distillery. And I'm oh, sure Heather didn't funny. talk to him for a week after that. <laughs> <laughs> and what date are we talking about? Oh, so this is kind of late 2000s. This is around like 2010. In 2012, we actually, the name was established. Um, In 2014, we started distilling. So it took about two years to find somebody because, you know, our distillery itself did not open and start operating until 2018. So what Kabe did, yeah, pretty new, right? Um, But, you know, next year we'll kind of be celebrating about 10 years of being a business. It's kind of crazy how it works. when you start a distillery, you kind of have three options. So a lot of people will do what's called sourcing. So you go and you find bourbon that's already been made. Most of the time it's already been aged. And you either do nothing to it or you might proof it down or you might finish it in a barrel or something like that. And then you just kind of put your own label on it and you sell it. And lots of people do that. Nothing wrong with sourcing. But Cave didn't feel, you know, we didn't really feel like we, we wanted to do that. It doesn't feel very transparent. It doesn't feel very honest to us, Right. Um, mm-hmm. so we wanted to make it ourselves. Now, the problem is it takes a really long time to build a distillery. Yes. So it took Cave about two years for, you know, us to find another distillery here in Kentucky that would actually make our recipes. And, you know, the big key on that is we use very, very unique recipes for bourbon. Um, and not everybody was willing to do it. So that's called Kind so of tell me about that a little bit more. What what kinds of recipes, and how yeah, are they so different? Absolutely. So you know, malted grains. Those are sort of the name. That's the name of the game around here. So you know, Scotch, obviously, lots of malted grains. So Cave understood the, the power and the flavor of malt. Um, bourbon. You know, you go back about fifteen, twenty years. Pretty much every bourbon recipe you find it's going to have maybe five, ten, 
at most 15% malted barley in there. And that is because the malt, right? I mean, that's really just for for chemistry. That's just creating the amylase for the, the, or diastase and amylase for the the yeast to um, have something to eat. Those diastases, they're going to convert starches into simple sugars. And if you don't do that, the yeast won't have anything to eat, and you've essentially made 15,000 pounds of polenta. So you gotta you gotta be able to have you know the amylase in there, but what you know Connie kind of had a, you know this idea and other people did around the same time. A few other people were kind of dabbling it like we were. Where you know malt has flavor. There is flavor in malt. It's not all about chemistry. So we use a ton of malted grains in our products. Um, oh yeah. You know, and we like to say you know if our something happened to our warehouses right now today they burned down or they collapsed or we lost it, everything was stolen, whatever, we couldn't go out there and buy these. No one else is making what we're making. Um, and that really, a lot of that is owed to a lot of these malted, uh, malted grains that we use. So what, what is, like, distinctive in the flavor then? I mean, yes. you have distinctive ingredients. What about distinctive flavors? What comes out of this? Absolutely. So, you know, I'm going to use like high gold. High gold is really an example of one of our products. Um, that is 70% corn, 25% malted rye, and 5% malted barley. Um, so there's 30% total malt in there. And you can call this a high rye bourbon. That malted rye is going to be giving you much stronger, sort of sweeter, earthier notes. Um, so, for example, in high gold, it really pushes a very, very big citrus and floral oh, yeah. and even caramel note. It really does. Now, you also get caramel and vanilla from the barrels. So when we're using this much right, malt, right, you're kind right, of right. doubling down on those flavors a little bit. But it depends on the type of malt. Barley is sort of the go-to for people uh, when it comes to malt for distillers. And the reason being, and I can't ever forget, there's a very technical term. I just can't think of it right now, but Essentially, it means, you know, with, mar- with barley, you only have to use a very small amount of barley to create a ton of that amylase or diastase. For example, corn, you would have to use all – if you only had corn and you were using no malt, you would have to malt 100% of the corn to get enough amylase to actually produce the, the, the simple sugars for the yeast to eat, whereas malted barley, you could put, like, three or four or five percent of that mash bill in there is malted barley and it's enough for the rest of the grains to live off of and for the yeast to eat and the rest of the grains create flavor, right? But once again, you start upping that malt, well, now you're just upping the flavor that that malt is going to bring. And depending on the type of malt that you use, you know, if you're using malted rye or malted barley or malted wheat or, you know, a special grain we use here is called honey malted wheat or honey malted barley that's in our, our K-fill bourbon. Um, that actually has like a honey nose and a, and, a, and, a, and a honey aroma, like a honey aroma and a, a honey taste. So depending on the type of malt that you use, you're going to change the flavor even more. Overall, malted flavors, think about like, um, oh, what is that uh, candy, a malted milk ball? That yeah. inside of a malted milk ball, that's malted yeah. barley. That's all that is, right? So you start thinking about that flavor of, sure, there's sweetness there, but there's also this sort of earthy, aromatic thing happening with malt as well. Can you tell that rabbit when you were tasting it? 
no, actually. But, but then I, I never, I never did like Maltesers. <laughs> there, is, there, there is, there is, a, there is a candy popular in England. I don't think it sells here, which is called Maltesers, and they're and they're balls. And they're, yeah, they're, malted they're, milk. Inside, inside is malted milk, and on the outside is milk, is milk chocolate, which is probably well, yeah, like. so much. But yeah, same, same thing over here. Yeah, absolutely. But, but let's let's go back to uh, another another aspect of of what makes Rabbit Hole special, and that's the the sheer elegance of the packaging. Oh boy, I'm, yeah. I was blown away by that. That's gorgeous, that's, isn't it? So, yeah. so so explain the packaging without anybody being able to see what it looks like. <laughs> well, well there's the embossed the glass rabbit number exactly. one. Exactly. Exactly. Kind of, it, you know, I actually learned a new term uh, uh, over the summer because I'd always, I, like you, I called it embossed, and our lead designer, he goes, I ah, know, it's debossed. And I was like, oh, okay. Debossed. It's debossed. So it's a debossed rabbit. Yeah, it kind of sinks in. So it's that rabbit sort of jumping into the rabbit hole, right? Um, right. But I'll tell you what is, is really, really striking about this. So first of all, a retailer will tell you, a liquor retailer will tell you, or a spirit seller will tell you that the first bottle of the product is sold by the bottle itself, what it looks like. Does it stand off the shelf? I bet, So yeah. you always kind of want to be, right? It does. But what sells it the second time is what's in the bottle, right? Okay. But what goes along with that is how does that bottle feel? And in the business, you know, on the sales side of the business, you've got on-premise and off-premise, so um, off-premise are like places that you drink off the premises, right? So yeah. spirit, you know, spirit sales, like liquor stores, things like that, whereas on-premise are bars. Well, when you're designing your bottle, you don't want to forget about your on-premise folks, like your servers or your bartenders. It's got to feel good in the hand, and it also has to pour well. There's, I can think of a lot of bottles, wine or bourbon or tequila or whatever, that have very thick sort of lips on them, and then you pour them, and it kind of goes everywhere, and it's hard to grip. Those yeah. are not bartenders' favorite bottles, right? And they're going to be yeah. less apt to pour those for people or to, 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 you know, say, hey, you should try this bottle because it's easier to grab. Um, but aesthetically, I mean, just by looking at it, you know, Cave, I love he talks about this sometimes, where the bottle is both ma- masculine and feminine, right? It's got the high shoulders, but it also has those beautiful, beautiful sort of mid-waist curves, like that classic yeah. sort of masculine versus feminine, right? And I think that's really cool that the bottle embodies both of those attributes. Now, have you ever seen Vavoom Vodka? Yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah. You've seen Vavoom Vodka? Yeah, that's, a, that's the one that's in the, the um, very curvy bottle, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very I don't know how they grabbed that one. I mean, I, <laughs> I couldn't yeah, wait to, to get, give that to somebody. I could <laughs> <laughs> now, I wouldn't believe other, it. Absolutely. Now the other thing that's interesting is the bottles that you sent us came with custom glassware. And oh yeah, yes. I forgot about and that. The, Tell the, us about the, that. The, and the well, let me let me say what I was going to say about it first of all. What what it reminds me of is the glasses that the, that the Peruvians use for drinking pisco. Oh yeah. Oh really. And, and uh, when, we, when we were in Peru, somebody, somebody gave us a set sim- similar to the two glasses that you sent us, but a, a set of Pisco 
for the Pisco drinker, which had glasses similar to similar to sort of like a cross between that and uh, a, a sake glass. Yeah. Yeah. And you gave it to your this, brother. And, and I, you'll yeah, you'll I have to remind it. me. That's kind of like a long stem, right? And it sort of has that tulip shape. Yes. Are those the Pisco glasses? Yeah, I know the ones you're talking I can understand. Yeah, it's kind of like that without that long stem. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But that's what it reminded me of. And the, co- and the concept that you would have a glass which was designed, if you like, for the liquor that going into it. Which, yes. which you don't, which you don't, which you don't get in Scotch. You don't, you don't get it in in, in most liquors. In fact, mm-hmm. yeah, those um, those glasses. So they're called Glencairn glasses, oh. and it was originally. I mean, I think it's actually, believe it or not, I think it is a Scot uh, a, a Scottish company that sort of popularized those glasses. But uh, oh, yeah, okay. they are great for bourbon. Now, I will tell you, this is sort of my my take. You know. I I I um I taste a lot of bourbon for for my job. You know, it's terrible, <laughs> but uh, it's just terrible. But so when I'm at the distillery, you know, those glasses they really allow you to dissect a spirit quite quite a bit, right? Got it, the okay. way that tulip shape it's pushing it up towards the nose. You can really see the color. Um, you really get the full expression of it. When I'm at home and I'm just trying to relax. I usually drink out of a rocks glass because if I drink out of one of those glasses, I'm right in work mode. And I can tell you right now, my wife does not enjoy that. <laughs> that, is not, that is not my wife's favorite type of atom is work atom. So. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's, let's do one more thing before, before we go, and that's to talk about proof. Yes. And, and let, are you still there? Yes. You still there? Okay. Yes, I am here. I am no, here. Yeah. I, no, I, I, uh, I just, I just had a beep. I just had a beep in the background. So, if <laughs> some, someone's calling on our line, but as, as, long, <laughs> as long as you're still, as long as you're still able to hear us, and we can hear you. you, you <laughs> I can you undi- absolutely. You undoubtedly are familiar with the story of the, uh, the, the bourbon which came with the wax on the top. Yes, of course. The Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark, and the, and the makers mm-hmm. of Maker's Mark deci- decided they would reduce the proof, and, and their <laughs> Maker's did. Mark aficionados rebelled. They did. They <laughs> did. Said, I do remember that. Said, yeah. it, said if you don't if you don't put it back to eighty six proof, we'll buy somebody else's bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you, they but did. It was a big deal. The two bourbons you sent us were both in the ninety-something proof. But explain yeah. to our, explain to our listeners what what that means to them. You say, is is there a special value to that that they get only from rabbit hole? Absolutely, there actually is. So um, you know, high gold. So three of our we have four kind of core whiskeys. So Cave Hill High Gold, um, Boxer Girl, which is a rye whiskey, and then. Derringer, which is that beautiful Pedro Jimenez Sherry cask finished bourbon. Um, the first three there, those are always 95 proof. The reason 95 is you know, a very specific number, um, it, it, the taste sort of changes. Some people skew higher proof. Some people skew lower proof. But traditionally, 
you know, sipping bourbon or sipping whiskeys around that 90 proof, right? 90 proof, very easy to drink and sip um, by itself. And then 100 proof whiskey, those were really great for cocktails because they were strong enough they can kind of stand up against a lot of the ingredients that go into a cocktail. Sometimes those ingredients are very sweet or very acidic, and that bourbon or whiskey can sort of stand up against it if it's 100 proof. Now, we wanted to split the difference, right? We wanted to be close to that 90 proof, just like a sipping whiskey, because we are a sipping whiskey. But you can also make really beautiful cocktails with with our products. And so we decided, let's get it a little closer to 95, or a little closer to 100 by making it 95 proof. Now, Derringer is 93, and the reason is, so we make a weeded bourbon, so it's primarily corn, of course, and then the secondary grain is wheat, um, just like, kind of like Maker's Mark, it's a weeded bourbon. And uh, we make that, and then we finish it in those Pedro Jimenez sherry casks. When we put it in those secondary Spanish casks, we put it in at 95 proof, and when it comes out, it actually usually loses a couple points. So it's usually around that 93 proof. We found that really that was the best flavor, was at 93 proof. So that was just a little bit under everything else. But 93 is beautiful for Derringer. It's, be- it's well, all beautiful. It's so it's beautiful. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go down and take a sip right now. <laughs> we have more interviews. Don't do that. I do have a suggestion that you can, you can pass along to your spouse. Please do. Sort of like a family story for us. So your first son is called Adam. I think Peter would be a really good name for your second one. <laughs> well, I, you know, we'll see. I mean, I know my, you know, my, my name is Adam, of course, and then my mother's name was Eve. So um, I think oh, that's no. how I came up with my name. I know it's how they came up with my name, but uh, but yeah, we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> Okay, well, thank, thank you so much for, jo- for oh, joining Adam, us today. It would be fun to sit and sip with you and, and, and pick your brain about all these wonderful things you know about the, the whole Next uh, time you're in Louisville, please reach oh, out yeah. and let me know, and we'll come, we'll get you to the distillery, and we'll, we'll hang out and have some drinks together and talk even more. Sounds good to me. <laughs> good, good as anything to, to go to Louisville. Okay, well, good, goodbye. Well, cheers and goodbye for now. Cheers. Okay. Dear Adam, thank you very much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Well, I guess we really seem to be... uh, um, a wealth of information on glassware for our drinks. We're doing it on purpose. Yes. But we're, next we're going to be talking to Tempe Reichardt, who was the CEO of uh, Gabrielle Glass North America. And boy, does she know her, her business. She, okay. knows, she knows her she glass. She was wonderful, yeah. Wonderful to talk to her. And, and the glasses that she sent us, we've been, we've been using those. Every, every day since since we got them, they're they're, ele- they're elegant, they're tasty, they're tasteful. These people really know what they're doing, they do. and and Tempe was a delightful person to talk to as well. Yes. 
Now, we're, we're having an exciting chat here with Tempe Reichart, who is the um, CEO of um, Gabrielle Glass North America. Did I get that right, Tempe? You did indeed, Anne. Good. Um, how did you end up doing this? <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. So, um, first of all, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and my, uh, one of my businesses was exporting uh, top California wine to Europe. And uh-huh. I lived in Europe for many years. And during that time, I met Rene Gabriel, who is the founder right. of Gabriel Glass. And he is um, a prominent uh, wine writer in the German language. And he very often wrote about the wines that I was shipping to Europe, and we became good friends and colleagues, and he bought wine from me. And um, over the course of the years, we developed a a very uh, wonderful friendship. I sold my business in Europe. I came back to California. And I was sort of in between, you know, I was wondering what I was going to do next. And out of the blue, I got a phone call from Rene Gabriel saying he was coming to California. He was going to be renting a Harley Davidson. He was going to be <laughs> traveling around California with, with three other wine freaks. And could they please come to my house for a barbecue? And I, and of course he, he had an ulterior motive which he knew he would, it was one stop shopping for great California wine, but he also wanted to pitch me to become his North American importer. So, um, obviously when he rubbed up to my house on his Harley, he didn't have any samples <laughs> with him. And we had a lively conversation. And um, I, I have to tell you, and I, at that moment in time, I had cupboards full of another brand of, of wine glasses. I very much subscribed to the bridal-specific concept of wine glass um, use. And so when Rene described his universal glass to me, um, out of respect to him, I was um, I listened keenly, but I was very much a skeptic. And so I, you know, I was polite and I said, "Thank you. Um, please send me some samples. I'll, I'll consider it um, as an opportunity." And um, he, uh, I received a box of beautiful crystal wine glasses from him, and. That was it. I. The but they were really his, his company. No, hold, hold on, hold on, it, a, hold on a second. Yeah. There was, there was another maker of wine glasses who came out with stemless glasses. So, surely stemless glasses was, was not was not a new idea. Well, yes. Um, we're we're actually the original glass that was created by Rene Gabriel is a beautiful stemmed glass. Yes, and from that, from that, our stemless glass was born. But the original glass is is an absolutely glorious um, leprechaun crystal vessel that um, has a stem and it is 
sublime to drink from. And having been in the wine world and the wine profession, when I received these beautiful stem glasses, it was basically love at first sight. And especially after drinking out of the glass, I was 100% sold. So I ended yeah, up... Yeah, I mean, they're not cheap, on... those glasses. They're not cheap, but they're like a cult classic, I read, especially yeah, with well, Sommelier's. Yes, there's a there's a lot of enthusiasm for the stemmed glass. Um, we make we make two qualities. There's the blown version, which is called the gold edition, and also a machine molded version, which is called the stand art glass. Right. A huge enthusiasm um, amongst um, sommeliers, uh, restaurateurs. Um, some of the top wineries in California and Oregon and Washington are working, and Texas. I have uh, customers in Texas. Extreme enthusiasm for this glass. So to clarify, we have recently released a stemless glass. So we now okay. have three wine glasses in our portfolio. I'm associating with the stemless because because that's what you that's what you sent us to to play with. Oh, that you know that's right. I that those are the samples you received. So if if you would like to um, direct the conversation to the stem stemless, I'm happy to go there. But you need to understand the stemmed glass uh, first because the stemless was born from the stemmed glass. No, so sure. Let's let's, you, let's, be, let's begin in the let's begin in the right place. I was just let's a little, begin in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I was just a little. Yeah. I was just a little puzzled because it it seems like uh, G- Gabrielle must have thought that he invented something new, and in fact, he really hadn't exactly. No, no. A, the universal um, stemmed glass that we released, and we are a young company, by the way. We are just 10 years old. Um, So it was released in Europe 10 years ago uh, to enormous acclaim for our standard and our gold edition glass, which are the stemmed glasses. And, again, they look exactly the same. The difference is one is blown and one is machine molded, and the, the gold is much lighter with a very, very thin lip. But if um, out of the birth of those glasses followed the drink art glass, which you have, which is a stemless glass. Now, what we contend is, we at Gabriel Glass, and it it speaks for all three of our our styles of our glasses, is that... um, it's just not necessary to have a uh, Chardonnay glass, a Sauvignon Blanc glass, a Riesling glass, a, you know, Syrah Well, glass. you know, I thought it was kind of excessive. And then we did a, a tasting uh, sponsored by um, uh, Riedel. And um, uh, the, I actually saw the difference in, in different wines and different glasses. So then... I went over to that side, but then I thought again it's excessive. They even have specific glasses for Australian wines. You know, a whole line for yes. just Australian wines. So, but I'm, I'm on the fence. I don't know what, 
I mean, you are certainly an expert, and do you think you get all the nuance um, of, of the different wines? Did you say, actually, you could even use this for cocktails and champagne, the Semos? Yes. Um, do you get yes. all the nuance without the, uh, the special design? Um, in my opinion, absolutely. And mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons why the Psalms are so excited about uh, and again, I have to go back to talk about the, our stemmed glasses. They and the stemless glass reflects a, sim- a very similar shape. It has a broader base on the bottom, and then there's sort of a gentle conical cur- curve, and then a conical shape at the top. So the intent of all three of our wine glasses, or if you will, cocktail glasses, but in this case we're talking about wine, is that it sort of gently decants the wine that's poured into the glass. The broader base allows for more surface-to-air contact. Flavors and aromas emerge in the glass. You can really pick up the nuances of the wine that you're drinking. And then that conical shape at the top sort of drives the aromas. So Rene Gabriel, as I mentioned, he is one of the you know, prominent wine writers in Europe. He, he's an author of many, many books. And he was preparing to author um, a book called The Vine Bible, uh, basically a wine oh, that 101. Idea. The Wine Bible in German. It's not um, it's... a translation of Karen McNeil's book. It's a wholly yeah. separate book that Renee authored and he was going to be tasting uh, you know really thousands of wines in preparation for his research and he wanted one glass as an equal measure for everything he was going to be tasting yeah so he went out into the marketplace and he was searching for that one glass that would work for everything from champagne to through to port and he, he couldn't find the appropriate glass that was working for all those different wines. And as he tells the story, and he's, he's a fabulous guy, he's a bon vivant, he's really <laughs> expressive. He said he woke up in the middle of the night and he sat bolt upright in bed and he's like, I've got it. And he got out of bed and he drew a line drawing of the, the glass, the Gabriel glass. And he he said, that's it. The broader base is, is key with that kind of conical shape that will drive the aromas. So he it took him some time. It was He had to find the right technical guy to make the glass, and it was two years of research and development before the correct prototype was developed, and they introduced the two stemmed glasses on the market to huge initial success and it was only this year that the uh, stemless glass the drink art glass was released in Europe and the United States globally it was released globally the the interesting the interesting thing is that the glass I can't say the stemmed one is true I'm sure it is but the the one for all glass, one of the marvelous things about it is it's very light. You, yes. You, so you they are barely um, feel it in your hand. Right. So it's it's lead-free crystal, 
Uh, and it's very, very high-tech um, glass making. So the key... But now, I've been resisting. Is, Apparently, it says in the literature that I got sent that you could actually um, drop the glass and not break it. But I've, I, I resisted the temptation to try that because they're so pretty. No, I... <laughs> I think that's a, uh, an overstatement. I, I don't. I, I would not advise that. I absolutely would not advise that. They are lead. They are lead-free crystal, and um, like all fine crystal, it has to be treated with care. So they. There was I thinking of last I had found a glass that would bounce. <laughs> I love that. I actually, um, I have to tell you an amazing story, but this relates to our stemmed glass. I was at uh, Ashes and Diamonds Winery in Napa, and they're a relatively new winery, and they use our stemmed glass. And they, the general manager of the winery told me the story, otherwise I wouldn't have believed it. And he was, see, he was serving a VIP group of, let's call it 12 tasters. And there was one fellow who was um, over-served. And <laughs> I love that managed, term. <laughs> <laughs> and managed to knock one of our, it was one of our gold edition glasses. This is our very high-end blown glass. Yeah. <laughs> he managed to knock it off the table onto a terrazzo floor. Oh, no. And it bounced. And <laughs> several and there were at least 13 witnesses to this. Wow. <laughs> I said to That's myself, amazing. I said, wow, I wish I had a video of that. <laughs> yeah. You, know. you could use that in that, couldn't you? <laughs> now, I have to ask you one hard question. Is, um, do you think that the, I mean, the many advantages to this one glass, this all thing, do you think this stemless glass is, as good as the stem glass is different only in the heat from the hand and holding it? Um, personally, no, I don't. Uh, it, there is a slight dip. Well, the, the stem, the, sorry, the stemless glass, which we call drink art, is flat on the bottom, and the our stemmed glasses have a very beautifully curved, not as flat bottom. And so there is a dimple in the bottom of the stemmed glass, which I think helps drive the aroma, helps the aromas, the flavors and aromas emerge a little bit more. And I, I truly, in all honesty, prefer to drink out of are stem glasses. Having said that, the drink art glass is absolutely fantastic for a more casual drinking experience, whether it's outside on your patio or for your Monday night wines. Um, you know, some people don't have dishwashers that can accommodate a stemmed glass. The drink art glass just pops right into the uh, dishwasher. Should no we put problem. it in the dishwasher? I don't know. As long as it's as good as dropping it on the floor with our track record. <laughs> uh, 
they the when yes technically the, the all of our products are dishwasher safe now having said that yeah, not yeah. all dishwashers are created right. equal and not all dishwasher loaders are created mm-hmm. equal so yeah, no, there go, go ahead go 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 ahead. no no come back to me i was just going to say that um many of the wineries that we work with uh absolutely dishwash our glasses but they don't use soap and they will wash them at extremely high temperatures and uh, so the glass will take very high temperatures it is any of our products are technically dishwasher safe um, but you've got to you know know your machine and know how you're loading it and also water quality is different from place to place and so you have to take into consideration all of those factors to dishwasher, not to dishwasher glasses. Right. Right. I mean, I, I have, I mean, I have a lot of family things. And, um, and there was one, I, I don't know what kind of glass it is. I guess it was for something like an old fashioned or something. I don't know. At any rate, it was called, it was all brightly colored. And it was called the Paris window. And I had never used it, but um, I had them because they were my mother's. And my daughter-in-law and son uh, pulled them out to use and plopped them in the dishwasher. And I thought, whoo, I've never seen, I didn't remember having these glasses. That's because all the the color and everything in the pouch came off of them. (laughs) And they were perfectly clear. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so as they say, not all dishwashers are created equal. Yeah, exactly. Here's the puzzler a little bit for me, so let's go go through this one a little more carefully because we've... Sweetheart, you remember we got that kit to to re-cork wine bottles? We have so many of them, it was, a super, it was a super high-tech device. I had so many of those around. <laughs> that allowed you to not, not, not have your red wine go flat or whatever. But they sent us one that was designed to keep the bubbles in rather than keep bubbles out for champagne. And the, and the supplier claimed that it was very, very important. And we replied... But how often do you have leftover sparkling wine? <laughs> and That's he, my issue. <laughs> he, he, was, he, was non, he was totally nonplussed. But, yeah. but, uh, but I have to, have to say I was, I was surprised, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the champagne experience with One for All. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I have to admit that I enjoy drinking champagne out of the gold edition blown glass, oh, yeah. and the standard glass, um, more than the drink art glass. So, but the gold edition is is a sublime drinking experience with champagne, um, and I it sort of depends on the kind of champagne drinker you are. If you prefer the bling that you get out of a flute where you have all those marvelous bubbles, you know, yeah, bubbling right. away in the glass. 
um, then Gabriel Glass probably is not for you. However, if you are a champagne drinker who really wants to know the nuances of the champagne that, that you're drinking, I highly recommend the Golder Standard Glass. Um, it, it just will show the champagne in the best possible light. And again, especially the gold glass because it has such a paper-thin lip. It's almost like drinking out of air. Um, but the standard glass is, is we have many restaurants that use only the standard glass for their service. And, uh, you know, of course they're pouring champagne all the way through to whatever, you know, dessert wine you may be drinking out of the glass. And they are very, very pleased with it, as am I. So, um, have you ever met, have you ever met Elaine? I can't remember her last name. Who was the founding president of Domaine Domaine Chandon in California? Oh, she's wonderful. Uh, um, are, I I have not. But are you referring to possibly Eileen Crane at that's, that's it. That's Domaine Chandon? She is a yes. Yeah, she's a friend and a neighbor, and we frequently drink champagne together. No, she's she, wonderful. She she she's yes, not she doing Chandon anymore. Uh, Domaine Carneros. No, she retired. Oh, she recently retired. Yeah. Okay. There's a new she, she, new marvelous. Yeah. Go ahead. The thing she was proudest proudest of is that since Monsieur Tattinger poured her champagne. On the millennium, on the fake millennium Eve. <laughs> she, she, she that felt, is she something felt, to be proud of. She felt that, that, that she felt that her job was done. <laughs> <laughs> she had arrived. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now you're you're obviously an experienced marketer. Um, who were you marketing this uh, stemless glass to? Well. Um, we we have interestingly we have customers that run the gambit, you know all age groups, uh, various wineries, various restaurants. Uh, it's it's it, it's not an age specific kind of product. Um, we do find interestingly that, and of course we've run the you know the numbers on who our customers are, and we sort of know who our who our consumer customers are. They are the biggest segment of buyers are women between the ages of, say, 28 and 50. Really? Um, That's a big make, demographic. Yeah. Yeah, they make up the bulk of our customer base. However, um, you know, of course, men flock to us. We have uh, several very, very prominent collectors around the country who will only drink out of Gabriel Glass, oh, yeah. several, you know, prominent winemakers who are use it in the cellar because it really performs for them and they love the nuances that they get from using especially our stemmed glasses. Um, and so our demographic is anyone who really loves wine. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 an, he's another person you should get to know. Joy, Joy Sterling. Joy. 
Oh, I I have known Joy for years and years yeah, and years. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we had we had lunch with 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 Audrey yeah. at the vineyard. And Barry. Vineyard. Um, and Barry. And, and poor Barry, late Barry. Yeah. And we 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 sampled all ten of their cuvées. Yeah, <laughs> they're fabulous wine. And then and then, and then we drove away. Don't miss that. Now, the one thing that, that I, I hesitated about with this glass is I couldn't see it somewhere I've read. I've read so much stuff about uh, Gabriel Glass. Somewhere I've read that it was, it was great for margaritas. I can't see that one. Well, we we are equal opportunity with our glasses, you know. <laughs> it's, it's up It's up. To the the owner of the glass to drink whatever they choose to drink out of our glass, and we have some. There's some interesting um, bartenders that we've gotten to know. Uh, our office is in Napa, and we've had some bartenders who've been experimenting with Gabriel glass, both the stemmed and the stemless glasses, and they love them. And so my opinion is. You know, just use it. Things are for using. So if you feel like making a margarita in Gabriel glass, go for it. <laughs> You're wonderful, Tempe. I'm so glad we got to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, well, and, I wish we were drinking together. At this I know. Weekend. I, I, I think we'd have a good that. time. And we'd have, to, <laughs> we'd have to get that him in on it, too, <laughs> Gabriel. He sounds like yeah. fun. There's a fine old building. In, in, there's a fine old building in Napa that we that we stayed at uh, overnight on one of our trips to California, and I can't remember what it's called. It's something like a Napa Valley Inn. What about it? Well, no, I just it's, it's, I just wondered if I just wondered if Tempe knew 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 of it. Is that the one with the outdoor uh, well, showers? No, no. Oh no, gosh, no. I I don't. You know, since I live here, I don't stay in hotels here. Got right. it, got it, okay. No, no, the, the thing about it, it was unusual, sweetheart. It took, it took us about six hours to get a rental car at uh, the San Francisco airport, so we so we pulled into this Napa Valley in order, it's called, at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and they served us food. Oh, wow. yeah, I remember that. That's nice. You remember that? No, I don't remember that. We've been doing this a long time, as you may have gathered. (laughs) And I can't can't remember which side is up, but I can remember things from 50 years ago. (laughs) Well, anyhow, um, thank you for sharing your your huge, huge understanding of of the the construct of this glass and of the company and... uh, of wine, and boy, you've, you've done this a while too, haven't you? I have. I've been in the wine industry for, oh, I don't even want to tell you how many years, but almost as long as you've been in, in the wine and food world for sure. So, <laughs> um, you know, once you're in, there's no escaping, right? Right. <laughs> it's just so, so it's a great world to operate in. Well, it's the 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 quality of the glass is just wonderful, and it's, it's I love the shape and everything about it. Um, I I did well, not like the the uh, other 
products. I mean, the um, other stemless glassware that's come on the market, I didn't like those at all. The ones that are just round, you have the feeling they've been uh, amputated yes. in some way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll leave you with one one quick thought about okay. the, um, the, our stemless glass, and you'll see it is flat on the bottom. And so with uh with covid and the pandemic the wineries are more and more serving doing outdoor service right oh right and so the moment our our stemless glass arrived on the market i received a, a call from fog Fleet and they said we're serving out we're serving outdoors we need your glass because our glasses are blowing away oh so, <laughs> so <laughs> So if you need to, if you're in a windy, the windy city, for example, you might want to consider using the drink art if you're out on your patio because it won't blow away. So, or on your boat. On your boat, I would be good too. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't often take those things into consideration as we're buying glassware, but um, I just think that's kind of amusing. And it is amusing. <laughs> practical aspect to the glass right um, well thank you again and uh listeners it's you should try this it's uh if you can lay hands on it gabriel glass uh the company is gabriel glass international and uh um it's 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 a wonderful sh- change up uh, for the drinking wine experience i think and if you want your margaritas you. to try that too <laughs> Why not? Indeed. Thank you again. Thank you, Anne and and uh, Peter. It was very nice talking to both of you. There you have it again, once again. Um, and another week, another dollar. Yeah, I was thinking another day, another dollar. That too. It's a week. <laughs> Anyhow, I guess we're going to be saying so long, but we don't really say so long, do we? Until next week, we say. Bye-bye, and we'll see you same time next week. And until then... Bye-bye.